0: I can't believe I beat Ben Sherman today. With a stick? No. He's in the wrong state for that.
1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 37 of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have James Zuber. Hello from Minneapolis, where it's a balmy four degrees.
0: Pete Hodgson. You just totally stole my thunder. I was going to complain about it being cold in San Francisco, but it's a lot warmer than that. Hello from not-so-frigid San Francisco. How cold is it in San Francisco? (laughs) It's like 32 degrees. I don't know. It feels like it's freezing, but it's probably not even 32 degrees. Probably warmer than that, which is cold for San
1: Francisco. Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and it's also 4 degrees here.
0: Okay, I'll stop complaining. But at least it's a dry cold.
1: Yeah, it's dry cold here, too. We did get some snow. There we go nope, it, makes no it a, little snow. Bit, a little bit nicer, <laughs> yeah, gives you something to do you go shovel snow. go skiing, I'm making people jealous now,
0: I'm sure I think I've been here once in San Francisco when it snowed, and it was like two or three flakes on the top of Twin Peaks, which is like the only really tall bit of San Francisco, and people like drove their cars up there in the middle of the night to see these snowflakes fall. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it wasn't like you know snowball fights, it was like four snowflakes. It was really exciting. Nice. Made my year. No skiing that year for us in San Francisco.
1: Oh come on! All right. Anyway, so today on our uh, docket we have MVC. All right, we're talking MVC. It's an MVC
2: extravaganza of sorts, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should start off with a
1: definition. <laughs> definition.
0: <laughs> Thanks, John. That might take the entire episode, I think. With MVC, I always get really confused. So I know what MVC stands for, Model View Controller, and I kind of understand the principles quite well, I feel like. But what I don't get is the difference between MVC and MVP, and then it gets really confusing when you start talking about some of the other things out there. This is a long shot. Do we you two know the difference between MVC and MVP? Because I definitely could not answer that if I had to save my life.
1: I have a very vague idea of what it means, so... I'm not even going to venture to try because I'll probably get it wrong. One thing that I can say though is that, you know, I've come f- to iOS programming from a very strong Rails background and MVC in Rails and MVC in iOS are not the same.
0: Yeah.
1: I tend to think of iOS as more of an MVVM because I the, forgot con- about that one. the controller <laughs> acts more like a view model or a view controller than it does, you know, like a full on controller. That's just think- my take on things. To unravel
2: all this, we have to start at the beginning.
1: That's a very good place (laughs) to start. (laughs) I think MVC
2: has become such a convoluted term, depending on kind of what world you come from.
1: Uh huh.
2: I mean, like from the Ruby world, we've got in the .NET kind of copied the Ruby version of MVC, and that's what everyone kind of uses for MVC. But if you go back, kind of small talk, MVC is very different. It was designed to be kind of a thick client type thing, and so the web stuff, you know, doesn't really. The same patterns don't apply because like on a thick client, like the model updates the, the view and something like that, which makes no sense in the web world. But when people say MVC, that's kind of what they're talking about. But the Apple view is quite a bit different. So if you're talking MVC in a Rails aspect versus kind of the Apple thing, it's totally different.
0: i do guess that the MVC, you know, the UI kit MVC is pretty similar to the Smalltalk MVC. Is, is that a good guess? From my understanding,
2: I don't fully understand the small talk one yeah. but i know i mean with like rails and net the controller creates the model hands it to the view it's like that guy in office space you know just takes the requirements
0: <laughs> hands it to the engineers <laughs>
2: When kind of ios you know you've got the controller talks to the model the model talks back to the controller which you know doesn't really make any sense in the web world but so that's one pretty important distinction when we're talking about
0: kind of ios apple stuff and kind of the more web-based mbcs And the views talk back to the controllers as well, right, which you would never get in. So if you're doing Rails or ASP.NET MVC, the view is just kind of a template that you kind of squirt data through, or at least it's just something that takes the model that the controller has provided to it and uses it to display data to the screen, as it were, to render HTML, whereas with Cocoa, I'm going to just call it a different version of MVC every time, with Cocoa MVC or UIKit MVC, the views are... When a user interacts with that view, the view kind of triggers events on the controller. So it's much less of a one-way communication.
1: So with the model view controller, typically you have your view and your... And even when you're talking about like uh, model view presenter or model view view model, the model and the view generally stay pretty much the same and have the same responsibilities. So the model basically contains all of your domain logic. In other words, if you're writing a banking app, then each model will have a different job relating to the banking app. Some of them may be users that are responsible for authentication. Um, you might have other things that represent like line items in a, an invoice or a tally sheet or whatever. That does all of the logic. So it's all of the math, all of the work, basically. And the view is responsible for displaying whatever it is that it gets from the presenter or view model or controller. In a way that people can interact with it. It manages the interactions. Usually it just delegates the, you know, the events from the interactions to something else like the presenter or controller. And, you know, is ultimately responsible for the UI portion. And then the presenter is kind of the go-between or the controller is the go-between between those. To give a little bit of context, the controller typically will determine which view or set of views to show and it will also ultimately be responsible for, at least in Rails and from what I can tell, in iOS it's responsible for actually returning the ultimate response, or, you know, it's responsible for coordinating the reaction to whatever happens.
0: Yeah, I think that's the key kind of concept of the controller, is it's, it's, uh, it's a coordinator between parties. So things happen in the model layer, or things happen in the view layer, or the, well, the view portion of this triad, the controller decides what to do in response to that interaction. Maybe it will go to the model layer and ask it to do some things, and then it will get some stuff back out from the model or set of models and then ask the view to do its thing. With Rails, the interaction between the models and the views are passive, right? They're, um, the controller is always having to kind of pull stuff out of the models and put stuff into, into views and vice versa. Whereas with some other frameworks, you have data binding where the models and well i guess with mvvm you have view models can be kind of bound directly to the view so so you use like a data binding technology to automatically update the view model when someone interacts with the view you know it's this is ridiculous that i can't remember this but you can do that with ios right you can do you can do like key value observing and stuff like that but it doesn't feel like it's actually that common to do that data binding thing automatically. I think Mm -hmm. normally you get the controller involved, but maybe I'm making myself sound like an idiot on live podcast by saying
1: that. (laughs) From what I've done playing with iOS and things like that, yeah, typically what I see is that the view delegates things back to the controller and the controller does the coordination. So, yeah, I don't see as much of the strict or the data binding that you see with MVVM. Mm -hmm.
0: There's no reason you couldn't do it, though, because I mean, key value observing is pretty powerful, so you could... You know, have a view that observes a model and when the model, when the controller modifies the model, the, uh, the view would automatically update itself. But I think if you were going to do that, you'd want a view model. You'd want a, a class that represents kind of the logical representation of the view rather than a class that represents your domain concepts, which is what you were describing earlier as the model.
2: Right. That gets more into kind of what you're talking about, the MVP, where you might have domain logic in your model but maybe you have a name that you have to format a certain way or a date mm-hmm. that might go kind of in the view, and that's more of a kind of presenter. It's like it's more of the MVP type. Yeah, okay,
1: sure. Sure. that helps me. Now that we're talking about this, yeah, I tend to think of model view presenter as more the presenter is, is the go-between in every way for the model. So if you do any bindings to, like we're talking about here, in model view presenter, then you would actually bind to the presenter, and the presenter would pass through to the model back. And so the view doesn't know anything about the model. The only thing that it knows about is the presenter.
0: And actually, in a lot of, I would argue in most cases, the view doesn't actually know about the presenter, or doesn't know about things like, the view shouldn't really know about anything, in my opinion. The view should know about you obviously need to tell the view hey, when stuff happens, call this delegate, or fire this event, or whatever, but really the view should be pretty dumb as to what it's talking to. It shouldn't really know what it's talking to because otherwise you have this kind of circular dependencies where the views know about the controllers and the controllers know about the views and suddenly it's very, very hard Mm -hmm. to tease those two apart. They kind of all get bound up together.
1: The other issue that I've seen in views is that if you start putting the logic like that into the views, then what you wind up doing is you're blending UI setup with logic and sometimes then it's hard to test or tease apart or
0: debug. I think that I have memories of when I was first starting with iOS programming. I had a real hard time with that, with trying to figure out where to put kind of presentation logic. I think I started off doing things the way I used to do them really back in the day with MFC, which is this horrible C++ library for Windows programming. And with that, library, you subclassed everything. So if you wanted a button that did something, you subclassed the button. If you wanted a table that did something, you subclassed the table and then put your custom stuff in the subclass. So when I first started with iOS development, I had a tendency to kind of use that same approach and try and create custom subclasses of views. And then I eventually realized that I was kind of violating really all of the kind of the good practices. And what I should have been doing instead is doing that customization by attaching the right delegates to those views so that when something happened in the view, that delegate could handle that thing happening, that event or that interaction, and then do something to the view maybe or to a set of views. But trying to put that logic in the view itself caused me no end of confusion and pain.
2: Yes, definitely. Keep things separate.
0: There must be a place to do... Subclassing, when you're actually building a view, like a presentation object, a widget displayed on the screen and you're using it in loads of different places, I guess there is a case to bundle that into a, a subclass. And maybe the, the rule of thumb there is if you're actually customizing the user, inter- the UI, you're customizing the look and feel, then then that's the case with subclassing a view. But if you're customizing the behavior of that thing, then probably you want to put that logic somewhere other than in the view, other than in a view subclass. That's one of
1: the core principles of MVC is having that separation of concerns. Yeah. And as long as you put things in the right place, then it really does kind of fall out neatly most of
0: the time. So one of the things that used to really irk me about iOS was there was a very rigid kind of binding of one view controller to one screen in your UI. Mm-hmm. And that made it really tricky for me to take sections of that screen and have them controlled by separate view controllers. And when the first iPad came out, That was really, really hard because there's these, you know, huge relatively huge chunks of real estate and you kinda want to logically break up your screen into different areas that are controlled by different classes. But it was really hard to do that because there wasn't really any way to have multiple view controllers interacting with the same kind of live on screen UI. And then they added some stuff in this this I think the first release after the initial iPad the first iOS release after the initial iPad release that let you do, what are they called, like the sub-view controllers or something like that? Do you guys know the things I mean, that you can kind of control sections of the screen with a view controller?
1: I've seen the concept, but I can't remember what they're called either.
0: Child
2: view controllers? That That's sounds... probably it.
0: That sounds like
2: it, yeah. Yeah,
1: and, and it's that aspect that reminds me of MVVM. I mean, if you go look at, like, Knockout.js and things like that, they do that, where that you basically have a view controller that or a view model that interacts with just one chunk of your overall view and then you know you can nest them so that you have you know larger context view models that handle larger sections of the page
0: yeah and it used to be really hard to do because there was this so we've been talking about kind of the abstract ideas but in the specifics for view controllers in ios they're not actually just responsible for receiving events from the view that they're managing the views the hierarchy of views that they're managing they also respond to kind of system-wide events or things like a screen rotation, right? And so that was really annoying when if you wanted to have multiple view controllers, how do you know which one is supposed to respond to the screen rotation? Should they each independently be responding to the screen location and moving their set of views around the screen, or should should they be waiting for some parent view controller, and then you have this kind of hierarchy of view controllers for each, like, a parallel hierarchy of views or... It got really confusing for a while before Apple kind of stepped in and, and created this kind of official way of managing that stuff. Yeah, it made it a lot clear. Have one
2: view controller, kind of handling all the stuff and everything else kind of feeds off that.
0: Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, stuff like memory management was the same thing and like view did load and what you do if you get, if, yeah, anyway, <laughs> I'll stop. No, it's all good uh, stuff. I'm just so like you- uh, reliving the pain of tearing my hair out of trying to figure out how to get this ipad app to not be a huge ball of mud with one view controller while at the same time trying to learn the intricacies of the view life cycle with mvc you know with the view controllers and the views and all this kind of crazy stuff mm-hmm. anyway sorry james you were saying something let's talk a little bit about how you actually implement
2: mvc in the ios app so we talked chuck talked a little bit about what the model view controller are you know what does that actually mean when we're actually building an application so like the view has obviously your controls your buttons your layers And your controller, your your view talks to the controller through your outlets and actions. So that's the communication that way.
1: Yeah, you get to drag all the, it does the lines and drags all the stuff. Mm -hmm. Do they still call it Interface Builder?
0: I guess it is. I mean, it's not a separate thing anymore, but it's still Interface Builder, yeah. You know, we still call Nibs Nibs, right? We're never going to give up the term. Mm -hmm. Oh, I worked someone called them Zibs, and it drove me insane. (laughs) I kept on correcting him, and he kept on not, not listening to me. I'm going to ca- yep. start calling them zibs now. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> I'm going to call them ibs. The X is silent. That's right. There you go. So how do we do the model controller communications? This is actually my question before answering that is it's very clear what a view and a controller is in, in iOS world, right? Like, So uh, view is, it derives from UI view and almost always derives from UI view and is kind of generally loaded, defined in a nib, or programmatically, and then managed by a view controller, which almost always derives from UI view controller. But the model, there isn't really like... If you're using core data, then you're you're generally going to be doing some something that's kind of based on core data. But the model, it can be any old plain old Objective-C class, right? There's no kind of superclass that it needs to derive from or any kind of protocol that it needs to implement. So...
1: Yeah, well, furthermore, the persistence doesn't matter. So it could be core data, or it could just be some text file that you're writing to and from, or it could be a plist, or it could be some service out on the web. Yeah, the beauty is the controller doesn't care. just talks to the model, and the model can do whatever it wants behind the
2: scene. One thing I, I like talking with other developers about is, like, how do you design your models? Do you keep them kind of thin, like just kind of your objects and just kind of data? And do your kind of web services calls outside of that? Or do you kind of keep a fat model where you, your model just handles everything? You know, I might delegate well, it out work. to something, but you know, it's just kind of a thin, anemic model and versus like a really fat model where your model does like so many different things. But yeah, I'm just, I'm always curious to see what people do. It's kind of their default and what works well. What's your default, Gene? I kind of keep a, th- a thinner model. I don't do a lot of like web service stuff. Actually, inside the model, I think. Yeah, I guess it depends. And I kind of go between different things based on the kind of what the app needs. I think from the controller standpoint, I don't do a lot of calling to like web services or core data from the controller. You know, the controller knows to deal with the model, but the model kind of delegates outside to get, you know, if you're going to a web service, get this data and the the model will go back. And when it gets it, it'll call back to the controller saying, Hey, I've got this data returned. So in a sense, I, Keep, I guess, a fatter model, but I do try and the model itself delegates to a number of different, you know, kind of the web service stuff. That's what I do. But yeah,
0: curious to see what other people are doing. My rule of thumb with this stuff is there's a couple of like really good sources of wisdom on this. There's this concept of hexagonal architectures, which a guy called Asta Coburn defined a while ago. And then there's also this book called Domain Driven Design that was written by this guy called Eric Evans. They're both really, really interesting, deep kind of concepts, but the concept with hexagonal architectures, also known as ports and adapters, is one of the key principles is that your domain, like that core kind of thing that Chuck was talking about that represents your business logic and the core kind of concepts of your application, so users and accounts and line items and things that aren't really technical but are more kind of reflect the reality of the domain of, you know, the problem domain that your app is working in. Those things should never know about the technical goop that they have to deal with to live in a real, you know, an actual application that's on an iOS platform or an actual Rails application or whatever. So if you keep that in mind, that kind of forces you, that's a really good way to kind of answer these questions without having to think about it. So, Jane, your question, I really like this question of, like, should my models go out to a web service to load themselves up? If you're sticking to the hexagonal architecture's approach, the answer to that is no, because then your models, which are your domain, would have to actually know about the concept of a web service, which they really shouldn't if you're adhering to this model. So one way of solving this, so now you're kind of stuck with, well, if I can't do a web service call from my model, then where should I do it? The way that I like to implement this normally for any kind of Less than trivial or more than trivial sized application is to build repositories. So the idea of a repository, and this one comes from this domain-driven design book. The idea with these is it's a kind of an abstract kind of source of information about. Is an abstract abstract kind of source of domain objects. So you might have a users repository or an invoice repository, and your controller, which is allowed to know about technical stuff because it's not domain, it's kind of the plumbing. Your controller can go to a repository and say, give me the user with ID 55 or whatever. And then that repository kind of encapsulates all of the talking to the web service technical stuff and just creates domain objects. So your technical stuff is allowed to know about how to create domain objects and how to interact with domain objects your domain objects aren't allowed to know about the technical stuff. So that's kind of my rule of thumb for solving that stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, going back to
2: kind of the DDD book, Evans. Yeah. I wouldn't suggest putting your network calls inside your model. Definitely, you know, for a repository, I don't generally call what I'm building a repository, you know. Right. But, you know, if you go out to a web service using AF networking or something, that's generally delegated from the model.
0: Right. You do see that a lot where people will just throw their networking, their AF networking code into like a, a static method on, you know, a class method on a model. Cause it's just like, Oh, that seems like a good place to put it. And it kind of is to an extent, but I think really that's muddying concerns because you're mixing in kind of technical networky stuff with that pure kind of domain logic that should be all that your model knows about. This is also like if you're in coming from the Rails world. Models in the Rails world derive from um, Active Record, so models, by definition, in standard Rails, models by definition know about the database, which I think is actually a real kind of violation of this hexagonal architecture's approach. They don't have that concept of repositories, and they end up always knowing that you know you end up m- mixing together business logic and SQL, essentially. Okay, so is the hexagonal architecture is that mentioned in the in the Eric Evans, or is that separate? It's separate. The two kind of play together very nicely. I wouldn't be surprised if Eric Evans references it. I think that hexagonal architecture's concept has been around since the, I want to say, mid-90s. So I think it's an older, it has more kind of precedence than the domain-driven design stuff, but the two tend to interact very very nicely like almost all the ddd stuff helps with all of those patterns kind of sit together quite nicely with these principles of ports and adapters which is the hexagonal architecture thing okay i'll check it out yeah i've got the ddd book you know i've read the
2: two chapters same two chapters that everyone else read yeah ignored the rest it's massive (laughs) and very dense (laughs) so
3: you have to read that book twice ben you're here it's a thing I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> I,
0: think
3: I think I've the, read that book three times.
0: The second half is the better. I, you know, half I, I, I suppose that
3: would probably be better. I've read I think I've read that book three times, and each time I just pick up something new from it. But uh yeah, it's one of my like all time favorites. Yeah. So, Jane, the other
0: kind of question that you had rolled in earlier when you were talking about, you know, should I do networking calls, you were also kind of saying, I think you were kind of implying like, should I have all of my logic in the models or should I put my logic somewhere else? Like and I think so again following ddd or just following good OO, I think lumping everything into the model just because it has a name in the mvc triad is the wrong thing to do so like repositories for example a really nice way of doing this stuff but they're not an m a v or a c but that doesn't mean that we don't use them and you can have the same idea for like let's say tax calculation is always a really good easy example for this you could start off when you're doing tax calculation of just adding that into your invoice so so say oh my invoice has some methods on it called that help calculate tax for this invoice and it goes through all of the line items and figures out whether it should have sales tax or not and whether this one has import duty and blah 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 if you kind of feel like everything has to be an mv e or a c then you always end up putting this logic in an mv e or a c but there's no reason you can't pull that out into a, its own class it is its own thing tax calculation is its own thing. And there's no reason you can't just create a plain old Objective-C class that represents the act of calculating taxes. And that's what, in I think, in in Domain-Driven Design, he talks about that as service objects or service classes, something like that, which I think is a horribly overloaded term, unfortunately. But that's the other kind of key thing that isn't obvious when you first start building ios apps particularly because ios apps are pretty small but you don't need to put everything in the model you don't need to put everything you particularly don't need to put everything in the controller that's the thing that everyone always ends up doing is the controller becomes the grab bag of you know it does some it handles the geolocation stuff and it also responds to networking things coming in and then it also handles xyz because that's what all of the sample code does, because all of the Apple sample code things are tiny little sample applications where you can get away with that.
1: Yeah, I tend to lean more toward having the service objects if I can, mainly just because then the model can understand how the thing should behave, and then the persistence, or whatever you want to call it, is sort of incidental to that. So it knows when it's supposed to save, but doesn't really care how it's supposed to save.
0: Yeah, and this even extends as far as things like rendering tables so almost everyone in particularly in iphone apps does what i do which is you just may add all of those delegate methods onto your view controller or you just derive from ui table view controller and now your view controller as well as everything else is also uh, managing the data for the table and deciding what row to display and all that kind of stuff that works fine if it's a very simple case i suppose but again people get in the habit of doing that and then they think that that's the only way that they can do it but actually Apple have really fought this through. When you create a table view, you don't say, this is the view controller, call this to get all of the information about what to display. You give it some delegates, and you actually give it multiple delegates, right? You give it the data source delegate, and you also give it the table view, whatever delegate. And those two delegates normally end up being the view controller because that's convenient. There's no reason you can't make a custom class... Whose sole responsibility is for basically controlling the rendering for that table view and being like a little mini controller that mediates between a set of data and the table view. And then your table, your view controller, the kind of the boss, all it does is kind of make sure that that table view controller, or sorry, that table controller is set up correctly. But it doesn't actually do any of the, doesn't implement any of the delegate protocols. It just kind of sets stuff up at the start of the day. And then says, you guys, hey, you table controller, you know all about tables. I'm not going to get involved. This is clearly your responsibility. Here's the table view. You guys, uh, here's the data. You guys get your stuff done. I'm just going to focus on the very high-level stuff because that's my role in this play that we're playing in. Yeah,
3: that, Does that make any I'm, sense. I'm actually a big fan of that sort of particular refactoring is to extract some complicated, well, not really complicated, but related methods out of a view controller and into a distinct object Admittedly, I don't do that very often at all. Uh, I just end up sticking it in the view controller because, you know, there's no other possible pointer you could set on the delegate but self. It's, it's <laughs> know, the compiler. Will, <laughs> the compiler will yell at you. No, Semantic error. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I just put all my code in the app delegate because that's what Apple tells me.
0: Yeah, right. Uh, that's the worst. Uh, the uh, worst
3: violation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Junk drawer. It's
3: getting so. I have a problem with a lot of the sample. The Apple samples, and a lot of times those are afterthoughts, probably written by an intern. you got to take them with a grain of salt. It's not like the official direction of Apple. Except when the new frameworks that come out in iOS 7, like uh, the transition framework, there's a bunch of sort of things that need to stick around globally so that you can do like custom interactive view controller transitions. And uh, when I was digging into this, it seemed like the best, well, actually the the only sample code I could find stuck all that maintenance code in order to coordinate the transition in the app delegate. And of course, you could extract that out into another class or something, but it seems like their guidance or lack of guidance on where to put that stuff is just ends up making everybody on Stack Overflow suggest putting these things in the app delegate.
2: So we talked a bit about how to organize our models and what the models are kind of responsible for. How do we do the communication between kind of the, the models and the controller? Like Pete, you talked a little bit about the delegate pattern, which is kind of the default where you, you, your view your controller will be a delegate of the model. So when the model has to update itself or signal that something has happened, it you will know, just call it its delegate. Which gives, lets the view controller do its thing. That's kind of the default, I think, for a lot of things. That's what most of the sample code is done, and Apple kind of leads us towards it. But there's, there's some other ways to doing kind of the model controller communication. Like one thing would be notifications. Have you guys played with that?
3: Notifications are, are handy, but they're also somewhat dangerous, I think, if you use them in the wrong way, because there could be multiple listeners. I like the sort of more explicit nature of a real protocol with a real delegate, but there are times when you're too far removed from the situation. You just need to sort of passively listen for an event, and in that case, I've used notifications, but I don't really use them that often.
2: Okay. I found, I mean, they're useful if your model, if more than one thing relies on what's happening with the model, a notification can be pretty useful with what Ben was saying. that's Yeah, that's, the, that's the, kind of the next thing. But you do have to be careful that you're releasing the notifications. And if you only care about a notification of a, a particular model, and there might be different ones of the same type that you're actually checking for that object. So there is more busy work and more ways to mess things up and cause weird bugs. Because if something happens and you don't dealloc and don't release your notifications, you kind of start getting multiple ones and you get kind of weird things happening. So it's definitely, yeah, I definitely go with the default as a delegate thing. But occasionally, you know, notifications can work. And also, yeah, like we're saying, like KVO, which KVO is really cool because like you'll have your model, the model doesn't have to do anything that has no concept of what's happening outside of it. It just updates its property or calls a method. It generally would be updated property. The model doesn't care about anything outside of itself. It just kind of does its thing. and Everything else kind of listens to it, which is pretty good. The thing I have a problem with that or I find annoying is that when you're listening to your KVO stuff, all happens through one method. So if you're doing this yeah. on a t- bunch of different methods, oh yeah, <laughs> then you have, then you have like some massive if loop. It, what's what's the name of that method? I can't remember it. Did observe something? Is that it?
3: Observe oh, value for key path.
2: Yeah, observe value for key path. Then you have if it's this type, if it's this, if it's this. So
3: we could probably do a whole episode on KVO, but maybe we should stop and do a definition. I think that's it's good twice.
0: Two requests for a definition in one podcast this is awesome. I feel like
1: I'm on the wrong show.
0: Yeah, right.
3: <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> Where's Josh?
1: So the running joke on Ruby Rogues is that Josh Susser always asks for definition. That's what we're referring to for those who aren't in the know. Anyway, okay. go okay.
3: ahead. Okay, so uh, KVO is key value observing, and it's a mechanism by which you can say, I want to know as soon as this slider's value property changes because I need to change the actual volume of a hardware device. And the two, by using KVO, uh, you can get notified anytime that property changes. And typically you would say add observer for key path and you pass in the key path you want. Uh, in this case, it would be like in st- quoted string value. And then it will call the object that you just set up as an observer. It'll call the method observe value for key path. And that is called for your class, for anything that you're observing, anything your super class is observing. Uh it's kind of a minefield. You have to get that implementation correct because basically what you would do is you say, if I'm interested in this particular value or key path, this is the one that I'm interested in, then I'm going to handle it, and I'm not going to call super, right, because I, I handled it. If I'm not handling it, then I should call super so that the super class doesn't get muted from all of the notifications that he was depending on. Yeah, it's really painful. That ends up being like a gigantic switch statement, and then usually I'll end up just grabbing... All of the code for handling each specific case and pull that into another method. It'd be nice if we could just do that from the get go and specify the selector that we want called.
0: Someone must have written a little helper open source thing where you kind of, it does all of the observing and then you register blocks for specific key paths or something like that and it does all of the boring mechanics.
2: Yeah, that would be that would, cool. That would be nice.
0: Maybe a listener of the show can email us and let us know. I'm trying this out to see if this ever works. <laughs> I see, I hear people doing it on podcasts all the time.
1: Just start a Git repo and start accepting pull requests before you write any code. I was considering
0: it. All we need is a good name. I'm thinking NS Observer, but that's probably already taken. And also you're probably not supposed to use NS.
2: Yeah. Another thing you also have to be careful if you're doing KVO for your communications is to tear them down correctly. Otherwise you get very strange side effects.
1: So do observers kind of fall into the view category or the controller category or?
0: That would be my question. Is So we're talking about kind of using these for something approximating data binding where the model changes and then the view updates. It doesn't seem like you can bind these two directly together. You can't bind the model. You can't have a view directly do KVO on a model because then you, well, you could, but you'd have to subclass the view and kind of that's what we were talking about earlier as being not necessarily the right thing to do. So I would assume, because I've never done this, I've thought about doing it, but I've never actually done it. I would assume the way you would get this to work to do kind of data binding would be the controller observes, does KVO on the model, and then when the model changes, the controller gets notified, and then the controller, in turn, tells the view, hey, update yourself because the model just changed. Is that correct? Yeah. If you look at the kind of Cocoa
2: way of doing things, yeah, the model notifies the controller, or the in this thing, the controller is listening for the model
0: change, yeah, then it handles the view. So, yeah, what you're saying is is right on. Is this pattern more common in OSX? Because I, mean, I feel like that's where I see most people talking about OSX is, uh, sorry, about KVO. I see. I feel like I read about it more in the OSX world than in UIKit world. Anyone know?
2: We need to patch an Andrew for this. <laughs> Where's where Andrew? Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, right. Phone <laughs> a friend. I'm just going to declare that to be truth because it sounds, sounds legit to me. There. I'll back it. I'll, I'll second that. <laughs>
3: Two people and said it. It's, it's got to be true.
1: It's always true until it's not. Just keep that in mind. Idiots left company. <laughs> All right. Well, are there any other aspects of MVC that we want to talk about? Well, one thing I've been playing with in some of my apps, and
2: I didn't really think of it as MVC, but if you start using more like a block pattern, I mean, does that even make sense as MVC, where the model would kind of uh, pass, in a, you could pass in a block to the model, like a controller? Saying okay, when this happens, just do this. I'm not even sure you can really call that MVC. I've done a little bit, but kind of doing more asynchronous style programming. Seeing if that makes sense. I haven't had a whole lot of success with it. I've been able to do it with
0: small things, but for larger things, it's gotten kind of unwield unwieldly quickly. Can you give like a a more a more explicit example of like what you would be doing in that block or what what would be happening? Okay, so like in a model. So
2: if we're using the delegate pattern, the model would have I did this. I updated this person. So if you have a delegate method, delegate methods just says I updated this person. If you're doing a block, you can pass in you know pass in a block to the model that's kind of defined outside of it with whatever you want to happen when that thing is updated. The person is updated. So the model does its thing. Says oh I updated the data for this person. It just calls the block method. So it's a more asynchronous kind of JavaScript type way of looking at things, which I never
0: thought of as MVC could be seen as kind of a convoluted way of doing it. I've tried to do the block-based thing with AF networking, and I prefer that to delegates, but I feel like if you did that in a controller, you would be kind of... It's deodorant for the fact that your controller is trying to do too much stuff. Like, if you need your controller to have more than one or two delegates on it, then probably that's the universe telling you that maybe your controller's trying to do too many things, and you should kind of be pulling that out into separate little helper classes. Mm -hmm. I get a little bit frustrated trying to do things with blocks because... I think because I have happy experiences doing that in JavaScript land uh, and it's really easy to just create anonymous functions and in Objective-C it's quite painful to do stuff with blocks. It's better than not having blocks but it's still not as easy as in some other languages so I always get quite frustrated trying to do stuff with blocks because it feels like it should be super easy and then I end up having to like remember what stuff has to be retained in the weak doody dude and the under-under block and all that stuff and I just get annoyed and throw my hands up in the yeah. air. Yep, that's... Pretty common.
3: I do a uh, pretty common example in this uh, networking presentation that I've been giving. And I take the, uh, the new NSURL session block based handler for an image download. And then once I get it working, you know, it's, it's kind of like download task with a URL. And then it takes a block, one single block with, which gives you the URL of the downloaded file, whether or not there was an error and the task itself or the response. And then I say, okay, now I want to show progress for this download, and unfortunately, progress is not supported using that block-based form, so I have to sort of convert it back into the NSURL session delegates methods. And what happens is interesting that you have, say, one block that is handling the callback for this request, and inside the block, you need to do a bunch of things like disable the network activity indicator spinner and you need to check to see if there's an error, and if so, you probably need to throw some sort of alert or update the user interface in some way, uh, which requires dispatching onto the main thread, uh, the main queue. Then you check the response. If there's no error, then you actually got a response, so then you have to cast the URL response to an HTTP response to get the status code. And then you check that to see if it's 200. If it's not 200, again, you're updating user interface with some sort of alert that has to be dispatched on the main queue. And then if, if you did get a 200, then you need to copy the file somewhere else. And in my case, I was doing it on a, just to a UI image in memory, and then jump onto the main queue to set that onto the image view. So you can imagine what kind of a indentation nightmare that, you know, three different if branches, and there's a bunch of dispatching happening, and there's the disabling of the network activity indicator. All of those methods, all those things, sifted into, like, a much tinier method when done in the delegate variant. There's one callback that tells you when the request finished, and uh, that's the place where you would get the error. And there's another one that tells you whether or not the file was downloaded. So all the file download, you know, transfer stuff goes there. It just cleaned everything up and put all those things into a distinct method, which is like your next refactoring trick in your pocket that you would take. You have this nasty-looking block method. Now let me sift this into other methods. So, I don't know, like, blocks are awesome, but I think that sometimes they get overused when there are too many parameters sometimes it's just nicer to to already have those methods predefined and each thing has its place.
2: Yeah, that sounds good. Just make everything explicit, clean, and a bit hard to test.
0: Shell.
1: (laughs) Any other tricks you guys want to share before we wrap this up? It's good stuff.
0: I think the main thing that we've kind of said in various different ways is that MVC is is a really nice pattern and it's really well implemented in iOS, but it doesn't mean everything has to be an M of E or a C. The way that Apple have implemented it makes it really easy for you to actually separate that stuff out into more, into single, things that are doing one single responsibility well. And I think it's very easy for us to get started by just throwing everything into the model or everything into the view controller or horror of horrors, everything into the app delegate. But really, uh, we should be feeling very free to to put stuff into small classes that do one thing well rather than a grab bag of utils class, whatever. That's my soapbox. Well
3: said.
1: Awesome. All right, well, let's go ahead and do the picks. Ben, do you want to start us off?
3: I actually have no picks today.
1: All right, Jane, what are your picks? So I'm light on picks too, but
2: I'm going to make an anti-pick for Microsoft, and they're not in general, but they're they're compiler, because I was talking to a guy about a month ago who's an Apple developer, and kind of going back to what you were saying, Pete, about MFC, like that's what I did in the 90s. It was a weird time. I'm still kind of scarred from it. I'm talking <laughs> to this guy. <laughs> you make I'm it sound to... like you did LSD in the 90s. It, the 90s were crazy, man. You're doing MFC, it was crazy. MFC
3: made me hallucinate, too.
2: Just how it went, man. But I'm talking to this guy, and he's like, he's an Apple guy, so he has a Mac app and an iOS app, and he wanted to kind of go to Windows and do a port, and he's talking to me about his experience with it, and he's like, I'm doing this thing called Microsoft Foundation Classes. I'm like... No, 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 don't do that. But that was kind of like the default because, like, oh, C++, it's still in there. It's still like an easily clickable option if you want to do C++ development in Microsoft Windows to do
3: MFC. Well, so, so I'm probably not at all qualified anymore to talk about this stuff, but there was a long period of time where everybody is switching to .NET and there was WinForms. And WinForms, in my opinion, the limited amount of development I did on WinForms was painful and there were bugs that just never got fixed. And I know people were able to build apps with this, but I had a really hard time with it. And then everybody started moving on to WPF, and including Evernote. And Evernote eventually ditched their WPF code in favor of C++. And I wonder if they're using MFC or if they're just doing their own, I don't know, window management. I have no idea how that works. But if there's no alternative and MFC is still supported, I wonder if Evernote's using MFC. I don't know. I need to check that out. I need to put into Windows. It's been a while. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they complained that uh, the WPF Evernote was too slow and it used the GPU when it didn't need to, or something like that. They kind of made a big stink in the uh, Microsoft community about like a large, you know, high-profile app ditching the the latest and greatest from Microsoft.
2: I've got my afternoon reading set now. I'm good. Cool. Thanks. Okay, that was my one anti pick. <laughs> awesome.
1: All right, Pete. What are your picks?
0: So my first pick, because we were talking about. KVO briefly, even though we should do a separate episode on that. But did a quick Google, and it turns out the inimitable Matt Thompson has an NSHipster installment about key value observing. So I haven't even read it, but I'm going to pick it anyway, because it's Matt Thompson. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm sure that's got some gems and jewels buried inside of that page. NSHipster.com slash key value observing. There will be a URL in the show notes. My second pick... I feel like I've picked this already, but I think I might have picked it on JavaScript Java when I was a very special guest on the JavaScript Java hexagonal ports and adapters. I already talked about this, um, a bit, but this is, I'm going to add a link to the original article that Alistair Coburn wrote. There's probably a better write up somewhere else by now because this is fairly old, but it's a uh, kind of a canonical source for this, this idea of the domain not knowing about all of the technical stuff and nice separation of concerns. And then, I'm going to pick something which I'm not sure how I can link to it, but Sol Mora has a really good talk about some of this stuff. I can't remember the name of it. Maybe Ben will remember it because I think he was at the same talk that I was, but it's about essentially design patterns. I'm pretty sure it was him doing a talk about design patterns in Objective-C. In or Amsterdam? A, yeah. Uh, yeah.
3: That one you're talking about was, if I remember correctly, it was at uh, MDevCon last year in Amsterdam, and he gave a talk on design patterns. Okay. I'll try and find a um, link for you.
0: There is a... Yeah, and I think there is... I'll, I'll look for a link because I think that the, that conference they posted... They've been posting the audio and the slides. They didn't have video, but they have audio. But yeah, he, he talks a lot about this idea of not bundling in the app delegate or the... Uh, or the uh,
3: I found a, re, a video recording of this talk, so I'll post it in uh-huh. the show notes.
0: Perfect. Thank you, my glamorous assistant Bench Chairman. And that <laughs> is... uh, <laughs> That's all I've got. I haven't got a bit pick this week. I've been slacking. If you've been I'm slacking, you a... should have a beer pick, yeah, right? right? Put uh, your feet well, up. Yeah, that's funny. I think of slacking as not drinking beer. I have my priorities, as
1: <laughs> you. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, I'll jump in with a couple of picks. First, I've been listening to uh, a book series on Audible. It's one of my favorite book series from when I was in high school. I was reading these it's called The Wheel of Time. They do kind of get a little bit slow. And I haven't read any of the Brandon Sanderson ones, so just put that out there. Anyway, I've been listening to the New Spring, which is the prequel, and uh, I'm really enjoying that, so I'm going to pick that. As far as code goes, I've just been buried with work, and so I don't really have any picks. If you're a freelancer, though, I am going to be putting together a series of emails that you will get when you sign up for my Going Rogue list. So if you go to goingroguevideo.com and sign up for the mailing list, Then you will get the email with my video on how I went freelance. And then you'll get a series of five emails that talk to you about how to raise your rate. And I'm working on a little mini video course for that. And I'm working on a larger, fuller length video course on how to find clients. So if you're interested in either of those, go check those out. And uh, you can also go check out the Freelancer Show where we talk about this stuff every week. And that's at freelancershow.com. So anyway, I picked me, I guess. Very nice. Picked fiction and then picked me. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm, I'm just interesting fiction, I think. So, Hey, what,
2: one, one note, Evernote was done with the Windows
3: template library,
0: which oh, I'm, not familiar, I don't even, I'm not familiar with at all. I don't
3: even know what that is.
0: Oh, no. I remember the WTL. It was like, so they had the ATL, and then they had the WTL, and it was ah, the most I remember crazy, ATL. yeah, it was like that crazy C++ metaprogramming template stuff that blew your mind. Oh, man, that totally chipped down the interesting you change one letter and you
1: get wtf <laughs> that's whatever i think of when i hear wpf i yeah. like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah of course what the luck i'm a, <laughs> i'm a battlestar galactica fan so uh if you change one of the other letters to an F, you get ftl so anyway i digress well let's uh let's wrap up the show then we'll catch you all next week